Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and we're joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to continue our discussion of the book of Revelation. And this time we're looking at uh, the, the wonderful chapter 15. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Good to be back again. Lots happening in this chapter this time. Now, to what extent are we moving now into the sacramental section of the book with the bowls? And is this section of the book connected with the Day of Atonement? So if we look at Israel's worship, there were bowls within Israel's worship, bowls with incense, bowls with wine. And going through the book, there are connections to feasts. There are connections to acts of worship. We might think about angel angels presenting things to the Lord in the worship of the heavenly throne room, the song that occurs there. Again, something we'll see in this chapter. And here it seems that there is an entrance into the heavenly tabernacle, which might also correspond with the Day of Atonement, which is the day where you enter into the, the, the high priest enters into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And so that correspondence, it seems to me, um, suggests some sort of festal theme going on here. And also the bowls could be connected with the sacramental bowls of the worship of Israel. What does John actually see in verse one, the, the sign that he sees? What does he actually see? He sees the seven angels who will have the seven bowls. They're connected directly with plagues here. Um, they're the ones that are going to sum up the wrath of God. We should maybe distinguish these from angels that we've seen previously. They may might be the same angels, but they are doing something different here. This is not just a recapitulation of what we saw in the seals or the trumpets. This is a new phase, and this new phase will not be partial destruction. It will be more comprehensive, total destruction. So they are the ones that will bring about the final act or initiate the final act of the judgment upon the earth um, and Babylon. Do the seven angels with bowls represent astral signs? For example, do they connect with the seven planets in the ancient solar system, for example? Yes, um, that's certainly an argument that Peter Lightheart makes. They were, those um, were connected with bowls. Well, comets were also signs of um, divine judgment. Austin Farah has written about this as well. Uh, he argued that there may be a descent through heavenly hierarchies. And so um, we might see these as a reference to the seven celestial bodies. Think also of the way that the seven stars earlier on in the book could be connected with those seven lights. And so, yeah. That's a possibility. The number seven again, we just can't escape it, can we, in this book? How does Revelation 15 connect back, I wonder, though, with the book of Exodus, thinking of the plagues? So, first of all, there are the um, seven last plagues, which suggests there have been previous plagues. We had three plagues earlier on, and so that makes a total of ten plagues, which obviously is a connection to the Exodus. We might think further of the ways in which blood was brought upon the land in the first great plague, the way in which the blood of the Nile represented the blood of innocent infants that had been slain there. And so in the same way, the innocent blood that has been shed upon the earth is going to be poured out upon them. So there's a similarity there. 
But there's also a similarity in the fact that they will sing the Song of Moses. Connecting back to um, chapter um, 14 and 15, the great deliverance at the Red Sea, followed by the Song of the Sea or the Song of Moses, where Moses and Miriam led the people in song concerning their deliverance. And so it seems that there is a hearkening back to the story of the Exodus here on a number of different levels, both the plagues and the deliverance and the worship that follows the deliverance. To what extent I want to do the bowls bring the completion of a creation week, because there are seven of them. Uh, are we perhaps to see? <laughs> you can't get away from it, can you? And you know, you know, this interviewer is just going to harp on about this because he finds it fascinating. Are we about to see a new creation? We are about to see a new creation, but we can maybe think of the seven bowls more in terms of a decreation week. There is a bringing down of the old creation. Again, these are themes connected with the original plagues of Egypt. There is a sort of decreation of Egypt as it's torn down from the uh, roots to the rafters. There is this movement of judgment up through the whole reality of Egypt from the Nile to the very heavens, and then um, the judgment upon the firstborn in the great climactic 10th plague. And so there is a creation, creational or decreational theme playing out here. What about a second exodus? Are we going to see a second exodus? Yes, we can maybe think about the exodus as taking place in a number of different phases. Um, so first of all, Christ accomplishes his exodus at Jerusalem, as it's described in Luke chapter 9. The exodus in Jerusalem is not just his death, it's the greater complex of events. His death, resurrection, ascension, and then his leading of his people. Um, so that is the initial exodus. Then there's a second sort of exodus, which is the exodus of the 144,000, as through their martyrdom, there is a sort of Red Sea crossing, and on the other side of that crossing, they are now singing the song of praise, just as Israel did. And there will be a third exodus, which will be those who are called out of the city, and they leave the city, and they are made part of the bride. So there is this three-stage of exodus. First of all, Christ, then the first fruits, and then the wider body that are called out of the city. Well, then we move to verses 2 and 5 and more exodus and throne room imagery. What does the crystal sea the saints stand on here? And how does that relate back to the Old Testament? So we could maybe relate it to the imagery of um, Exodus chapter 24 with the, the elders before the throne of, of with God enthroned above them. And they're eating a meal on the side of the mountain. And there is this imagery of this um, crystal above them. You might think also of the way that we have similar imagery to this in the opening vision of the book of Ezekiel. Or we might think about the imagery in Daniel chapter 7, where rivers of fly fire flow out. So this combines the imagery of the crystal sea and the imagery of the fire that comes out. It's a sea of glass mingled with fire. And so there is a, a sort of crossing of a sea, but this crossing of the sea is more of a vertical movement up through the sea. So we might think about this as the waters above the firmament back in Genesis chapter one, or we might think about it connected with the imagery of the tabernacle ascending up through the blue curtains. This is the um, waters above that they're passing through the crystal sea mingled with fire. And then you have 
this standing on the shore on the other side, which is a vertical movement up to the the shore, as it were, of heaven. Uh, is there an image of baptism there as well, perhaps? Yes. Uh, when we think about baptism, it's a movement into Christ's death in anticipation and assurance of his resurrection. And so it's uh, an entrance into his exodus. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told that the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Again, think water and fire, the cloud of fire. And in that imagery, we have union with the one who'd already undergone a sort of exodus. Moses was brought up out of the sea in his initial deliverance as an infant. And now Israel, as they are new infants, they are drawn through the sea, firstborn of the nations, and their deliverance is a sort of exodus in Moses' exodus. Now, what are the two separate songs that the martyrs sing here? Yes. So if we um, go back in chapter four, there is already a song being sung. Um, they are taught a song earlier on in um, chapter 14, but now we should pay attention to the change of setting. They were on Mount Zion at the beginning of chapter 14. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now they are on Mount Zion in chapter 14, verse 1. Now we have a vision of them in heaven. They're taught a song. Now they're singing the song. And the song that they're singing is taking up earlier parts of scripture and the imagery and the language that ultimately goes back to the song of the sea in Exodus chapter 15. Now that was, we can maybe think of it as Israel's national anthem. It's the great event of Israel's formation as a people, the crossing of the Red Sea. And that song of praise is the song that celebrates that deliverance and Israel's birth as a distinct people. Now, what you have, I think, in various later literature is a sort of remixing of elements of the language of um, Exodus chapter 15. This is something that um, Richard Borkham gets into in great length. So you can think about the Psalms, Psalm 86, for instance, verses 8 to 10. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And Psalm 98, verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Again, this is language that we see picked up within um, this passage. And then, of course, um, Isaiah chapter 5, 11, verse 15 to 12, verse 6. It's a reframing of the Red Sea crossing deliverance and song in the context of a new deliverance. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria 
for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you may comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Very familiar language. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Um, and then you find further background for the songs of Isaiah in um, Psalm 105, for instance. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, pre sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Richard Borkham discusses this very well. There is this act of judgment and deliverance of his people, um, this is described in a way that expresses God's supremacy over the superiority to the pagan gods. There is a mighty act of judgment that fills the nations with fear. It brings the people to his temple. And then there's an expression of the Lord's continuing reign, enduring reign in Exodus chapter 15. And all of these things are picked up within this later literature. And so this, I think, calls back to a rich tapestry of scripture it helps us to the person who really knows scripture and you should know the psalms really well you'll hear different allusions to them in scripture and it was presumed you're singing the psalms you're not singing hymns primarily you're singing psalms and so when you hear something like this that's playing with psalm elements you know what you're hearing and you're able to point out where it's coming from and also the surrounding context that it's bringing to the surface because when we hear a reference to scripture it's not just about the explicit verse that's quoted it's about all the things that surround that yes indeed and revelation is just full of the old testament isn't it now the bowls the bowl sequence begins at verse five now to what extent is this bowl sequence a recapitulation and an extension of the trumpets so this is the next phase so on one level we shouldn't conflate it with the trumpets as if it were just the trumpets described from another perspective it's not and um, this is a new phase it's a far more complete destruction the trumpet judgments were partial these are more complete these are the fi great final plagues um but yet in the same way there is clearly similarity between the seals and the trumpets and then in turn with the trumpets and the bowls the bowls continue the sequence but there is also this sort of climactic spiral where you're going through patterns again and yet you're moving up like you'd move up a spiral staircase at any point being above some point that you'd been at previously. And so I think there is a continuation of that cycle, um, but it's also a completion of the cycle within the bowls. And we move to another horse. That sounds a bit strange, but the, the bowls, I think, come under the heading of the green horse, don't they? We're up to the the green horse. In the sequence. Yes, you could, if you're reading them in that sort of sequence, yes. Mm -hmm. I've got to mention the cherubim. What's the role of the four cherubim here? The four cherubim are the most immediate to the uh, throne of the Lord. Um, so we can think about, again, the throne imagery is complicated and rich in a way that represents the, it represents God in very complicated ways. So you have the 
voice from the throne. You have the uh, flowing out from the throne of the spirit. You have the um, throne connected with the father, the lamb upon the throne or the lamb speaking from the midst of the throne. All these sorts of ways of representing the unit unity of the Trinity, but also the um, three persons. And around the throne, the four living creatures are the most immediate ones. And so there is maybe a movement out from the throne. There's the the way in which the four living creatures get the golden bowls and then they pass them on. And so it's maybe to be seen as a, a movement out from the throne and the four living creatures representing the primary authorities. We can think about the four angels at other points, the four winds connected with the four winds of heaven, the four corners of the earth. Um, and this is a comprehensive judgment. And so the four living creatures that represent all creatures, all corners of the earth, as it were, they're holding the four cornerstones that were of the creation. This is about to topple the whole building. And so they give the bowls. Maybe am I, am I right in sorry? Am I right in thinking this is the last thing we see the cherubim do in Revelation? I'm not. You might be right. I um, think I'd so. Like confirm that. And, and so, in what sense then, if that's the case, do we see the covenant of angels coming to an end here? Certainly, within the book, there is this movement down from heaven, or um, this movement back, as it were, while other parties are moving up and in. Um, think about the way that the the woman and the dragon of chapter 12 have both descended from heaven, They're both now operating upon the earth and no longer in the heaven. And yet the martyrs have ascended and they are now being brought into positions of authority. They're participating in the heavenly worship. They're singing the song. Um, so there does seem to be a, a changing of the cast of characters that surround the throne that we first saw in chapter four. Mm, changing of the guard almost. What's the significance of the opening of the temple of the tabernacle of witness? Now, back in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, we saw uh, an opening occur. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And at the end of that, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple there were flashings of lightning rumblings peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail there seems to be something similar happening here there's another opening up and judgment is going to flow out again it was a very dangerous thing for that to be opened the we might think about the way that it's there to provide protection so that you would not be exposed to the glory and the holiness of the Lord. Having those barriers enabled it to be, I mean, this is like removing all the, this is like removing all the protection around nuclear power station, just exposing its core. Um, it's a very dangerous thing to take place. And now the judgment is going to come. There's going to be the meltdown of creation. Uh, what's the significance of the fact that the angels, seven angels, come out of the temple? Yes, again, this is flowing out. This is not just something that's coming down. It's coming from the very heart. They're coming out of the temple. We might usually think about the bowls going into the temple and offering the bowls of incense, the bowls of the blood being offered. But now there is this movement out and down. And so there's a pouring out. Um, and it also might represent a sort of judgment in the reje rejection of sacrifice. Um, movement yeah. up and in um, is the movement of accepted sacrifice. You're ascending to God's presence and you're coming to him, being brought near. And what's happening in this case is ascending out 
Um, and we might think, for instance, of things like Nadab and Abihu, fire coming out from the presence of the Lord. This is something similar. We might also think of this as a sort of inverted Pentecost. The um, wine of the spirit was poured out upon the church so that they spoke in ways that made people wonder whether they were drunk with wine, but they were not drunk with wine. They were filled with the spirit. Now this is a new pouring out of blood and the wine of judgment. And this is going to be a sort of the inverse of Pentecost, a Pentecost-like judgment uh, event, but one that represents curse, not so much blessing. Yes. Is there any significance to the way the angels are dressed? I mean, they're, they're wearing pure linen and belts of gold. That would seem to be suggestive, I suspect. Yes, you might think of this as a sort of, um, they are attendants within the temple worship. And it seems that we've had imagery like this earlier on in the book. I'm trying to think. Um, in the opening vision, Christ has a golden sash, I think, around his chest. So the the long robe and the golden sash, the linen garments, maybe it's also representing their connection with Christ. And possibly with the high priest of Israel too. Yeah, so think about the linen garments on the mm. Day of Atonement. Mm. So it all fits in with the atonement picture, doesn't it? The symbolism. I've probably already dealt with this. Why are the bowls full of the wine of God's wrath? What's happening here? The wine of wrath, we might think back to places like Jeremiah with the passing around of the poison chalice that eventually gets back to Babylon and they drink it and judgment comes upon them. But this more general judgment with the image of wine that's poison that will cause the nations to reel and here it's wine poisoned with the blood of the saints. We might think later on of the harlot who's drinking from her chalice the blood of the saints. This is, I think, a connection with that. What do the angels do with the bowls and why do they do it? So they're going to be pouring out the, the bowls upon the earth. It's going to be a, a sort of upturning of those um, and in a way that brings judgment it's going to connect we've thought previously of the imagery of the blood being poured out upon the earth the wine press that imagery at the end of chapter 14 um and there is a preparation for i think what we'll see in the chapters that follow with the bold judgments and these are very much the climactic events um of the book they're going to be bringing about the the closing um, judgments of the old creation. I think we talked about this in the last podcast. The, uh, what's the biblical theology of bowls? Bowls would, I think, most naturally connect with the bowls of the tabernacle and temple. Um, they're used for offering particular things. Think about particularly blood. Think about wine offered with some of the sacrifices. Think about the offering of the offering of incense in bowls. They're offered in different ways. And here, I think, we're picking up on some of those those themes. Yes. Is there a connection with the bowls? For, I mean, as soon as you mentioned bowls full of blood, I think of the Lord's Supper. Yes. Um, we might um, think about the ways in which there are things that can apply in a very positive way that twisted into their inverse can become a symbol of judgment. So the celebration of the lord's supper there's a cup of blessing that we drink 
And as a result, there is this expectation that we're going to be blessed as we come before the Lord as his bride. We drink the wine, which is a sign of his blood that we take into it. We're drinking the cup of a mart- the blood of a martyr of Christ, the true and faithful witness. We're drinking his blood. And then we have this vid- vision of the harlot drinking a cup of blood, which is a sort of false Eucharist. It's the blood that is now the blood of curse. And of course, this might bring our minds back to Numbers chapter 5 and the ways in which the test of jealousy involved a poisoned, not a poisoned drink, but a, a drink that was bitter water. And so there's a sort of bitter wine that's drunk that brings judgment on account of unfaithfulness. In Corinth, there were those who were drinking the blood of the supper and the wine of the supper and bringing judgment upon themselves on account of their unfaithfulness. So even the faithful, even the true right can be twisted as a result of people's unfaithfulness. But clearly there is some sort of juxtaposition of the true drinking of the wine of the martyr and the drinking of the wine of the martyrs in a ways that in ways that brings judgment. You become guilty of that blood. Um, and Jerusalem had filled herself up with the blood of the saints. And this drinking the blood of the saints is an image of that. I'm reminded of the end of Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, for some reason, the poisoned chalice, which brings judgment on the entire cast virtually. Yeah. I uh, don't know why that popped into my mind. Last question, Alistair. What's the significance of the smoke in the sanctuary? We better deal with this. Yeah, so smoke is a part of the sanctuary in part because it is um, representing the clouds of the firmament. We might think also of the way that incense is connected with the fifth day in the cycle of the elements of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 25 to 31. Um, It's connected with the high priest's garments. They are dressed so that they will fly, as it were, in the firmament, and the incense is connected with the clouds of the firmament. This is also something that connects with glory, the glory cloud. And there is a sort of cloud of incense that corresponds with the Shekinah glory and the cloud of God's presence. Um, It's a sort of analog to that. We might also think about it as the imagery of uh, the sort of scented cloud, the cloud of the scent that fills the house after Christ is anointed with nard or the cloud of incense that fills the temple, the imagery that is picked up by various church fathers, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 6. The glory of the Lord filling the temple is connected with smoke, with incense, with scent, all these sorts of things. And so it's a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of the heavenly firmament. And it's a symbol of um, prayers ascending as well, all these sorts of things. Absolutely fascinating. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. Once again, Alistair, thank you so much. We've been discussing Revelation 15. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much once again. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. 
As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.